Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians. To Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is just after Ephesians. That may not, excuse me, just after Philippians. That may not help. I don't know, but. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now, we have been slowly uh, working through Colossians, through the first 23 verses. And I might say that everything up to this point has, in Paul's letter, has been introductory. And if verses 1 through 23 were all we had of this letter, we would still have a great deal to learn from them as we have seen. We've seen a great deal. These verses actually have everything that a letter from Paul typically has. A brief introduction, praise and thanksgiving to God, in other words, doxology, theology and doctrine, and some key ethical teaching. And that is the content of a basic letter from Paul, but obviously he does not stop there. Verse 24 begins the main body of this letter. And so this morning, uh, we're going to begin at verse 24 and read through 29. So follow along with me as we read. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. A little by way of confession here, I have to admit that in my pride, I really thought Colossians was going to be easier to preach than it is. This is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. First, because there is so much meat here, so many great interconnected themes gathered together. Second, Paul's sentences can be very long. In the Greek text, verses 24 through 29 are one sentence. Uh, There are a couple of semicolons thrown in, but really it's one long stretch. And these prolonged, focused passages require us to keep up, like little toddlers running alongside their father's walking pace. You've seen that. So we have our work cut out for us this morning. There's a lot going on in this passage that we want to try to capture. We first want to ask, what is the heart of this passage? What is Paul hoping that we will see? And I think it is this, that the faith we share together in this safe room was secured for us through blood, death, and great love so that what was once a mystery might be made fully known to us through the gospel with the goal that Christ himself might burn in our hearts through faith. Well, how do we proceed with that idea in mind? How do we preach such a lengthy passage? Well, just for a moment, I'd like for you to think with me of the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. The first thing you must do when putting a puzzle together is to carefully pour the pieces out on the table, which is what we just did by reading these verses. Second, we have to take the raw data of these passage, 
and begin to think in terms of the large scale, grouping colors with colors, textures with textures, and so forth. And doing this will require us to think somewhat structurally this morning and and a little bit abstractly in some cases. And so I ask you beforehand, in case you get a little bored, please to hang in there with me. Then we take the pieces of the puzzle and begin to deduce what the larger picture looks like. If you've done a jigsaw puzzle before, you know how this goes. I hate jigsaw puzzles, by the way, but it's a great analogy. You put the corner pieces together, so I'm told. Then the rest of the borders, and then you begin to fill in the body of the picture. And once we have the big picture, as much as we have time for this morning, once we have that big picture before us, we still have to stand back and interpret it taking it in as a whole. So we're going to be quite busy this morning. There is a lot to do. So first I'd like for us to talk some about the overall structure of this passage. There is a thematic construction in these six verses that is known as a chiasm, which is sort of like a palindrome or a symmetrical arrangement that that states a set of themes and then repeats those themes, but in reverse order. This chiasm begins in verse 24, as Paul mentions the theme of suffering in joy. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He then progresses in verse 25 to the theme of preaching the word of God. And then in verse 26, Paul talks about the mystery. So here we have a bare bones order of themes, suffering, preaching, mystery. And then in verses 27 through 29, he reverses the order of those themes. In verse 27, he continues to speak about the mystery, but now he opens and he fattens this idea up a little bit by saying that Christ Jesus himself is that mystery. In other words, the mystery is now no longer a mystery. And then in verse 28, Paul returns to the idea of preaching as he did, as he spoke of in verse 25. Only now he says more specifically that it is Christ whom he proclaims. And then in verse 29, Paul completes the the chiasm by returning to the original idea of suffering and striving, as he says there in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power. So all this to say that verses 24 and 29, though they're separated and they're the bookends of the passage, they are really connected thematically. And we will talk more about that here in a moment, of course. In similar fashion, verses 25 and 28 go together thematically, having to do with preaching and proclaiming. And then verses 26 and 27, speaking of this mystery, form the thematic center. Now, as with any chiasm, it's really the, the center theme, in this case, Christ himself, that is the main point and focus. Now, Paul uses chiasms in some of his letters, the most, uh, maybe the largest and, and perhaps the most known of which is in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The middle passage, the center theme being love in, in chapter 13, love being the greatest of the gifts. Uh, Here in, in Colossians, the themes of suffering, striving, and preaching, proclaiming are very important, but they are laid out in such a way as to drive our focus to the center theme toward Christ. Now, so please keep in mind that the themes are important. They're the important thing. The chiasm is just a literary tool. It's just the tool that the author uses. Think of it as a trellis or a frame on which you hang some very important themes. Okay, Keep the themes close to you, not the chiasm, not the structure or the frame. Now, with all this in mind, we're a little bit more ready, think, to start looking at the text more closely. Actually, we've been staring at the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box, which is always as far as I get with a jigsaw puzzle. I just look at the picture, it's all I get. But now we have to begin dealing with the pieces that we have gently poured out on the table. And so to verse 24 we go. Look with me there, please. 
The first major theme, as we have said, is Paul's sufferings. Now, we'll notice that the main verb there in verse 24 is, I rejoice. And we are going to return to this crucial, absolutely crucial theme of joy and rejoicing here in a moment. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul's sufferings are for the sake of the church, which includes the Colossians and ultimately you and me. Now that may sound strange to our ears, but it was a struggle and it took suffering and affliction not only to pastor and to plant churches and to preach the gospel, but also to pen the letters that we have today in our hands as we study them. Paul's sufferings are for the sake of the church and for you and me. Now, his afflictions were not random, not fate, not out of nowhere. They are God-ordained afflictions undertaken for the sake of God's people. Now, while there is no atoning work in Paul's sufferings, he nevertheless suffers on the Colossians' behalf in a way that benefits them spiritually. Paul says, for your sake. In much of Paul's writings, his use of the word for can mean on behalf of, for the sake of, even in place of. Romans 5.8 is a prominent example of in place of. That verse ends, Christ died for us. There's the use of the preposition for. But in the Greek, which is Christos, huper, hemon, apethenin, literally Christ in our place, died. And there could be no place in Scripture a stronger pronouncement of substitutionary atonement. Jesus literally gave himself to God's wrath in the stead of guilty sinners like you and me. He has dealt with our sin problem directly, and we are forgiven and freed. That is the theological impact of a simple preposition like for. Here in verse 24, back in Colossians, Paul uses for, for your sakes, to mean that he suffers on their behalf. This is not quite as strong uh, as in place of, but it still has significant impact. How so? Well, uh, Paul's sufferings as an apostle are really unique in the history of the church. That's not to say that other Christians haven't suffered equally harshly or even more terribly in some situations. Paul was never burned at the stake, for example. Uh, He never saw his wife and children slaughtered in front of him, as has happened in recent times to pastors in countries where conversion to Christ is illegal. No, when we say that Paul's sufferings are unique to the church, we mean first that those sufferings were commissioned by Jesus personally, personally by way of revelation. In Acts 9.16, Jesus tells Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul. For, says Jesus, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's afflictions make his situation pretty unique. Jesus' commissioning makes them unique. Jesus does not mean, by the way, that he's going to punish Paul for his former sins or for his former persecution of the church. Rather, it'll be the case that Paul, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, just as Jesus did while on earth, will undergo the exact same kind of affliction that Jesus endured. And of course, it will eventually lead to Paul's death as well. Second, Paul's sufferings are unique to church history because while they are not atoning, in other words, there's no redemptive value in Paul's sufferings. All the atonement and redemption we need is at the cross of our Lord. It does mean that those afflictions were undertaken for the sake of the church in ways never seen since. See, in Paul's ministry, there's a strong connection between his suffering for the church and his suffering for the name of Jesus. To give himself to the church, to be, as he said, poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith, Philippians 2. That meant to suffer on behalf of Christ's name. 
for Paul to most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. That was his vocation as an apostle. It is all unto Christ Jesus on behalf of or for Christ's body. So Paul can can actually rejoice because his sufferings are not random. They're not faint, nor are they punishment. They are for the people of God, commissioned by God. He is set apart by Jesus to suffer so as to further the gospel among the saints, to further establish them in their faith. And that's the basic meaning of for your sake. In God's economy, the the apostolic work of the gospel meant inevitable suffering. I'm not unaware of the irony of that, by the way. It is not, here I am hoping to preach the gospel this morning, and I probably won't suffer for it. I understand that we're free and and I have this freedom to do that without, um, without any danger. But that was not the case for Paul. To do the work meant to put himself under affliction for the sake of keeping the gospel in front of believers. In a world that hates the gospel, so as to bring those believers to maturity on the day of judgment. Now Paul says he does all this, looking in verse 24. He does all this in my flesh. We might ask why he says it that way. We know that Paul suffered physically through beatings, whippings, mistreatment, imprisonment, shipwreck, stonings, always in danger from unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, preaching publicly yet constantly having to hide, planting churches in the city yet regularly being chased out of town, There were riots, plots on his life, schemes to discredit him, and really the most pernicious of all probably was the constant work of the Judaizers to pervert the gospel and turn it back to circumcision and the law. And as he writes this letter, as we've seen before, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. All of these things he endures in his body. His afflictions afflictions are in real time. They're earthly. He suffered in his body. This is why he could write to the Galatians, by the way. In chapter 6 of that letter, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks, the brand marks of Jesus. As if to say, you Judaizers demand circumcision. Listen, I wear on my back the very scars that identify me as belonging to Christ. But you might ask the question, what? What does all this suffering in the flesh accomplish? What does Paul mean by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? This verb, filling up, basically indicates a secondary person that completes what a primary person began but did not complete, did not quite finish. To say, I fill up instead of someone else kind of comes close to what Paul's saying here. What Christ Jesus began to experience in his brief ministry, all the pushback, the affliction, the persecution, as well as the agonizing labor of bringing his disciples to maturity, Paul now takes up in order to complete it. Christ Jesus suffered mainly because of what he preached, what he claimed, His preaching ministry was then cut short by crucifixion in God's timing, of course, in God's sovereign plan. But nonetheless, his ministry was cut short. He was raised from the dead, and now he directly commissions Paul to take up where he left off, that is, with the preaching of the end-time gospel of the kingdom. But now, one step further, to take that gospel to the Gentiles. And in this way, Paul is a suffering servant, similar to, but not the same as Christ, but similar to the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, In one commentary, in G.K. Beale's commentary, he points out that just as Jesus' appearance was marred, Isaiah 52, 14, so Paul was bruised and battered such that the Corinthians were astonished at how he looked. Jesus was despised and forsaken of men, Isaiah 53, 3. Paul, 
taking up Jesus's ministry was treated like trash and was despised. Jesus was not esteemed. People thought he was stricken by God and afflicted. People thought the same thing about Paul as well. This is the basic meaning of filling up. It means taking up the suffering, loss, and affliction that Jesus took up for our sakes. Now, we've said that verses 24 and 29 are connected thematically. It's not actually easy to tell from our translations, though. In verse 24, Jesus says decisively that he suffers. But that's not so evident in verse 29, at least in the English. However, in the Greek, Paul says, by the way, for this purpose also I labor, verse 29, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. In the Greek, that word for striving is agonizamenos. It's a mouthful from which we get our word agony or agonizing. Truth is, Paul agonizes in his task of filling up. He agonizes first in prayer and in preaching and teaching to establish the gospel among the the churches. See, his afflictions, which are Christ's afflictions, are actually more than persecution. More than mere blowback for preaching publicly, his very work, the actual day-to-day labors themselves, are painful and hard because it is terribly difficult to form Christ in the hearts and minds of people, to keep the gospel in front of them until it begins to be formative in their lives. So suffering, verse 24, and agonizing, verse 29, these are the hallmarks of Paul's day-to-day boots-on-the-ground ministry. But notice, beloved, look back in verse 24 with me, please. Notice that Paul's suffering and agony are marked both by joy, in verse 24, and then, in verse 29, by God's strength. Now, again, I'm treating these two verses, though separated so much, I'm treating them together as thematically one. In fact, the main subject verb of the whole passage is, I rejoice. Verse 24. Beloved, don't miss Paul's joy in his sufferings. If pain and affliction were an unavoidable part of preaching the gospel, if you couldn't preach without the likelihood of suffering, so joy was just as inevitable. As a matter of fact, if Paul wanted true joy, he had to go through the pain. Now, I want to be careful here. It wasn't the pain that brought the joy. God is not a a punisher of his children. God is no masochist. Paul was no sadist. He didn't enjoy his suffering. No, what he really enjoyed was the closeness, the intimacy with Jesus that came with sharing in his sufferings. Uh, We get a really strong sense of this in Philippians 3 verses 8 through 14. That is a rather lengthy passage that I'm not going to read. I don't have time to read here. I assign it to you for your homework. How's that? Philippians 3, 8 through 14. But of particular importance is verse, excuse me, is verse 10, in which Paul says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And listen, the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And why? Verse 11, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, joy and suffering in the life of Paul are of a piece. And don't miss this. Paul can make the pain and suffering stop anytime he wants. You ever thought about that? He could simply walk away from preaching the gospel. He could quietly retreat to some remote corner of the Roman Empire and practice his faith in private, just like our culture wants us to do. Paul could stop preaching the resurrection and become a nobody, another face in the crowd. All the whippings, the beatings, the riots, the schemes against him would eventually die away. He could retire, write books anonymously, write a few anonymous letters, maybe disciple some guys in the download, not drawing too much attention to himself. 
But this preaching and church planting, this whole public insistence on a resurrected Lord who isn't Caesar, stop all that and Paul could get some semblance of his life back. That's not what he does, obviously. He presses on, suffering and agonizing in his body, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And all of it for the sake of the name and on behalf of people he hasn't even met, like the Colossians. He hasn't met these people. He knows that going forward with this gospel means agony and compelled by love for Christ and for these believers, he chooses the path of pain because only there, beloved, is the joy. Only there... Sharing in the afflictions of Christ does the joy of the Lord become Paul's strength. I am am compelled to ask this morning, how much time do you devote in your daily routine? How much emotional energy? How much money do we spend to keep suffering away from ourselves? How much personal capital does it take to surround yourself with bliss at all times? and to keep affliction from seeping in. Truth is, we've been conditioned both by our culture and even by Christian people to shun affliction or pain as a curse rather than to embrace it like like the gift that it is. Listen to Christian radio or contemporary Christian music and you'll find that much of its content is about going through trials, hard circumstances, and that God is going to bring you through And if you listen to the wrong radio station, there's some out there, they'll tell you that God has a miracle waiting for you. A miracle breakthrough if you'll just send in your money because that's not God's will for you. Pain, sickness is not God's will for you. Send in your contribution now, right? Well, God has promised to bring us through it. Or, in His providence, the trial you're going through might just kill you to your final sanctification and His glory. But rarely do I ever hear God thanked and praised for decreeing the suffering to begin with, for ordaining it. It is as if we still can't bring ourselves to see that God brings darkness and calamity just as surely as he brings light and favor. We don't accept Isaiah 45.7, for example, which says the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. We don't like those kinds of verses. We reinterpret those kinds of verses. But Paul and the apostles would embrace Isaiah 45 just as readily as they would Psalm 23. While I know this is not the primary point of the text, I am compelled to ask you this morning, how can you and I be prepared for the inevitable suffering and agony that comes with preaching publicly the gospel when we routinely spend so much of our resources to keep that very suffering at arm's length? Paul fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And what is lacking specifically are the afflictions necessary to advance the gospel in a hostile world, just as Jesus was doing before he was cut off. The afflictions that actually began in Jesus' ministry that took him to the cross, the pain and suffering to which Christ Jesus has appointed Paul specifically. Again, not to punish Paul for his former sins, but to prove his grace, to prove God's grace in even the worst of sinners, and also that the church would see that and be comforted so that even you and I might see God's grace in Paul's life. Paul's afflictions and suffering and agonizing are grace not only for Paul, but for the church. Christian, Beloved, your sufferings, your afflictions are the grace of a loving, compassionate, sovereign Father. The pain itself is a gift and it is meant to drive us to the joy of knowing Christ in His sufferings. 
And there is the very joy we might miss out on because we spend so much energy trying to avoid pain. And the result is we're not even happy, let alone joyful. We just live in fear of what's going to happen next. When we know that we were not saved and delivered from sin and death so that we might live in fear. Paul does all this because according to verse 25, please look with me there, he was made, he says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul is a minister, diakonos, literally a servant of the church for the church, as we've said. And what is the exact purpose of the stewardship? Paul says in verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, let me just say something here. I know that some of you might be worried because I'm 20 minutes into this thing and I'm only on verse 25. And we've got all the way to the And you're wondering, how in the world? Just don't panic, okay? I promise, don't panic. Here, Paul continues the notion, use the notion of filling, completion, taking something to the nth degree. In verse 24, it was filling up what is lacking. Now in verse 25, it is fully carrying out his commission to preach the word of God. Literally, Paul's Greek reads, to make full the word of God. Now, making full the word of God ought to make us think of prophecy. There is always a prophetic element in the preaching of the gospel, or at least there should be, particularly because the word of God itself is already always inherently eschatological. In other words, having to do with the end of all things and the coming new creation. The gospel announces the end time arrival of the God-man, Jesus the servant of the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who died, who was raised again, who ascended and who is definitely returning to judge the wicked and to rescue and deliver his saints. That is the basic content of apostolic preaching, the preaching of the apostles. So for Paul to make full the word of God means preaching, preaching a message that it has its own end times urgency built into it. We get a glimpse of this in Acts 17, beginning in verse 30, where Paul preaches to the Athenians. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's preaching is full with end times urgency, not scaremongering, urgency, including the coming judgment. Just as Jesus' preaching was, uh, when he said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is the specific content of Paul's preaching? It's the gospel, yeah. But what do we mean by that? Well, we get a clear picture of this back in Colossians verse 28. Please look with me there where Paul says explicitly, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And there again is the eschatological urgency of preaching. The judgment is coming, and Paul labors and strives to present at the judgment every man mature in Christ Jesus. This is what it means for Paul to make full the word of God. It means to complete through preaching and admonishing and teaching all that God meant for his word to do, which is to reconcile people to himself and to bring them to spiritual maturity as they wait for the new creation. Now, God might have chosen, as we know, any number of means for planting churches and fulfilling the Great Commission. But in his wisdom, he chose the foolishness of preaching, 
a bunch of people sitting around listening to a dude hammering out God's word and then going, taking that word and putting it into practice. Now, it's not preaching per se that matures us. Rather, it is the content of what is preached. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And and what is the foolishness of Paul's preaching? We've already seen it in verse 28. It is Christ Jesus himself, his eternal deity, his incarnation, his life, his death, resurrection, ascension, return, and eternal rule over the nations. Everything pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all that foolishness is the end of the mystery. Look with me in verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, we, like the Colossians, we really have it so good. We are privileged, overwhelmingly honored, and gifted to be among those to whom the mystery has been revealed. Beloved, there was a time when God's plans and purposes in Christ were shrouded in obscurity. Before Jesus came, the gospel was understood only partially as through fog. Now God did give his prophets deep insight as to his holiness, his eternality, his beauty and goodness, and his steadfast love. They understood the future good news only partly. They knew a Messiah was coming, that he would be great, that he would rule the nations, although they didn't really understand how. Isaiah even understood that Messiah would be a servant and would die for the sins of the people. We see that in Isaiah 52 and 53. These prophets understood a great deal, but only God fully knows and interprets the future he has ordained. The prophets, the Old Testament saints, looked forward in their faith to the coming of Messiah, and there was so much they couldn't understand that you and I now kind of take for granted, to be honest. We have this New Testament. They didn't have. Peter said that these prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, the prophets were commissioned to announce the end of the mystery and the coming of Christ's kingdom. But what do the apostles preach? They preach the prophets. They preach the Old Testament. The prophets, though they understood later, got it right. Messiah has come. He did die for the sins of the people. He did rise again. And now the apostles is to take what the prophets wrote and to announce the end of the mystery, to proclaim Christ Jesus as the mystery that has now been uncovered. Now, if you hear nothing else this morning, I do want to encourage you to hear this. Jesus is the Father's unveiled masterwork. This is why we call people to look upon Jesus in faith. In preaching the gospel, we literally remove the cover, point to the masterwork, and call out to people, Behold your God. That's what we do in the preaching of the gospel. Now, what is more, God willed to make his plans and purposes known in Christ, even to the Gentiles. Paul the Jew was the first full-time ministry to the non-missionary to the non-Jews. And 
Part of that long shrouded mystery is that God had always intended that Gentiles like you and me would be included in the kingdom. It is stated at several places, many places in the Old Testament. I'll give you just a few examples. Psalm 86, 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Daniel 7. And to him, that is to the king, to Messiah, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Isaiah 49, 6. God says to his servant, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Beloved, salvation does come through the Jews, but it was always intended for the whole world. You and I, Gentiles in the flesh, Worship together today because God's grace in the gospel was given to Paul to preach the riches of the glory of this mystery. We Gentiles who don't deserve it know Messiah. He is in us. He is our hope of glory. And his gospel is no longer a mystery. Now for your homework, I also assign to you Ephesians 2, 11, through all of chapter 3. Ephesians 2.11, through all of chapter 3, where Paul goes into much greater detail regarding the Gentiles' place in God's plan and purpose. But beloved, God's plan and purposes for the world are no longer a mystery. Now it is mysterious to us still that a just and holy God would befriend, redeem, save, and deliver undeserving sinners like ourselves. That's a mystery. Unless you keep reading in Scripture and find out God's steadfast love, God's steadfast love, God's steadfast love. It's all over Scripture. And then it comes as not so much a mystery anymore. There are aspects of the story that still remain somewhat mysterious to us. For example, the end of the end. We don't know when Jesus is returning. It's good for us that we don't know that. But when is not the important thing. The mystery has been revealed, brother. Jesus is returning. There's no mystery there. Okay, so we have chiasm. We have these themes. We have suffering, agonizing. We have preaching, proclaiming. We have mystery, but it is Christ and there is no mystery. What do we do with all these pieces? And all of it is in the context of joy. In verse 24, all of it in the context of joy. Well, we have to put together as much of the puzzle as we can in the time I have left. And so I think there are three takeaways for us this morning, and they have to do with the three interconnected themes we've been talking about. First is this. Suffering and agonizing are inevitable not only in gospel ministry, but also in the normal Christian life. Paul's preaching brought him great affliction while it brought the Gentiles the clarification of what was once shrouded in mystery. This is not to elevate Paul, by the way, but to prove God's grace for us. See, Paul is not the point. Paul is actually never the point. But his joy is instructive. He did what he did because he too was caught up in the grace of God for sinners like himself. And it was his joy to suffer so that others might know this grace. That is the, the, the vocation to which Jesus appointed him. Paul's experience is unique in church history. There will never be another Paul. But we do need to ask ourselves whether we are willing to suffer, even physically, and to agonize in prayer for others for the sake of clearing up the mystery through the gospel. I'll give you an example. For the great majority of the people with whom I work in my place of employment, Christianity is something that in their minds they just can't live up to, so why even try? Now, they are in rebellion. They'll tell you, no, I'm in rebellion. They'll just tell you, okay? 
and unbelief, but there is this, there's this wall. To them, Christianity is a list of rules, a closed club, God with folded arms, and oh, by the way, God could never forgive me for the things I've done, so I will never go to your church. In other words, they misunderstand the gospel. They don't get the gospel. Uh, Furthermore, most of my friends at Meyer, that's where I work, have this idyllic notion about me that I must be going to heaven because I don't cuss, gossip, get drunk, sleep around because I'm a nice guy. They know that I preach, some of them, but they can't really figure out what it is I would talk about. I try to tell them, but there's this veil over them. And if you don't believe me, go look up 2 Corinthians 4. There's this veil. Uh, some of them actually think I'm a priest, but then they can't figure out why a priest would work for Meyer. It's all messed up. Some of them think of me as... as I. One of us even told me they think of me as a judgmental goody two-shoes. So I've often thought maybe about doing something just dastardly at the store. <laughs> maybe cuss a little, throw a tantrum, or maybe shoplift something, you know. That, no, I, no, just kidding, Mom. And she always listens to my sermons. Uh, that one would get me fired, so I don't. But listen, my, my faith that has reconciled me to God in Christ is largely still a mystery to my friends at Meyer. I dare say that there are many people with whom you work for whom Christ is still a mystery. But the uneasy question is this, how can that be the case, beloved, when you and I have a gospel that has cleared all that up for them? Paul says in verse 28, we proclaim him. The mystery has been revealed, but it still requires dying to ourselves in order to proclaim. And that requires the agony of prayer and the suffering of self-sacrifice. So the question I have had to face as I've been preparing this sermon is, how can I have been at Meyer for two years now and still my friends there see a mystery in me? Now, I have shared the gospel. I've pointed them to God's love and grace. But how much am I agonizing over them in prayer and outward love? All that said, by the way, we need to not forget that in verse 29, Paul may strive, he may agonize, but he does so according to God's power, which he says, mightily works within me. See, there is no understanding this passage unless we include God's power. You've got to get these four words into your head. You cannot do it. You cannot suffer in joy. You cannot preach in any way that clears up the mystery for people. You you cannot admonish and teach with all wisdom. You cannot agonize in prayer. You can't do any of these things apart from God and his power working mightily within you. Paul says it right here. Some of you still think you can do it. And that's usually the younger set that thinks that, but you can't. Jesus really meant it when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The second takeaway is this. The theme of preaching and proclaiming must have ultimately to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our preaching and our sharing of the gospel must keep At the very least, we need to keep Jesus unveiled. We must not cover over his glory in our preaching. We cannot overemphasize the need today to preach Christ crucified for sinners, risen from the dead, and returning to judge and to save. We need today the apostolic gospel, the one that includes prophetic judgment, the original good news. The world needs the kerygma, not the charisma, the kerygma the end-time proclamation of God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the church needs the didache. It's just a Greek word. It means teaching. The teaching concerning Christ that helps us live rightly and purely as we wait for him. Kerygma didache. Now, doing this will inevitably push us back onto the rocks of suffering. 
But again, it is there on the rocks that we discover the joy of the Lord in the deepest ways imaginable as he strengthens us with his mighty power. Some of you know this firsthand. Finally, lastly, uh, we need to live our lives as people for whom the mystery is no longer a mystery. The veil is gone and our joy in suffering as we proclaim Christ should shine on our faces like that of Moses when he came down from the mountain. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not an idealist here. I'm not trying to be an idealist. We do not enjoy suffering and affliction. Pain is really painful. Paul's head really was chopped off. He didn't look forward to that humiliation. But if there was anything true in Paul, it was that the mystery was gone and he could not unsee the glory of his Savior. Uh, Nor can you and I. We live our lives the way we do because we have seen his glory in the gospel. And in seeing, believing, and walking with him, there is something about our lives that gives people pause. We have been with Christ. And our lives shine. So let them shine. What do we do with all this information? Having heard, do we gather up the puzzle pieces, put them back in the box and forget that we were ever here? Do we leave the puzzle on the table half finished? Or do we frame it and hang it on the wall for everyone to see? That's up to you, Miss Yo. Let's pray together. Father, in your wisdom and chiming in your sovereign grace, you have lifted the veil off of your masterwork, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and have, by your mercy, given us eyes to behold his glory. And thankfulness is only the beginning. Oh, Lord God, Grant that we should continue to behold the glory of of Jesus as we go about our day, as we go about our week. Perhaps even suffering, perhaps even sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Help us always to behold his glory so that we may tell others, behold your God. And at the very least to say, behold my God and to give a testimony of who you are. Oh, Lord God, help us. Thank you, Lord, for your great precious promises that have wrapped us up and brought us close to you, that have arrested us and enslaved us to you, to your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your word. We pray all these things always in the name of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.